I would like to tell you just a little bit about it. Thanks for expressing an interest. Wow, that's really good. Um, this was a little different. I've led tours to Israel, uh, and they've been such a blessing, but this was a missions tour. Only we didn't call it that. In some countries, the term missions, missionary is not the best. So we called this the Sagemont Israel Service Tour. And uh, that's how we introduced ourselves to the country and the security officials. We're here on a tour of service uh, because we love the people of the land and we're a church group and we want to be on God's side. Anyway, they let us through. So while there, we uh, entered into partnership with an in-country missionary who our church happens to support, at least his organization is called Chosen People Ministries, a very wonderful group. He's an American, and he and his family went up to Israel, oh, four or five years ago, and he's a missionary there. So he led us to opportunities that were marvelous. I'll just tell you about one. We were uh, invited to a top-secret military installation on the Lebanese border, uh, and it's uh, the soldiers there are uh, special forces uh types, uh, front lines combat troops. It's called the Sword Battalion, the Sword Battalion. And uh, you could even go on the Internet and look it up and find information on it. Quite interesting. Came into being some decades ago, and it is primarily made up of Druze people, D-R-U-Z-E, Druze people. Now, there's Miss Marjorie Drew right there. And she and I and her wonderful husband, who's with the Lord, went to Israel some years ago, and they are the Druze. So we always got the Druze confused with the other Druze. Anyway, these Druze are not the Druze, D-R-E-W-S, D-R-U-Z-E. It's a very secretive, confusing religion. Uh, and the Druze are Arab-speaking people, uh, Arabic culture, but citizens of Israel. It might come as a surprise to you to know that of the seven million inhabitants of the land, one and a half million are Arab Israelis who are, are, have full rights and privileges in the land. Now the Druze are a particular community of Arab Israelis. And they are very loyal to Israel, which they consider to be just as much their country as the Jewish people. And they're right. They're full-fledged Israeli citizens, and they serve in the Israeli military with great proficiency. They're excellent scouts and uh, have performed in a very distinguished way over the years. So we were permitted to go to a military installation consisting uh, of maybe 550 soldiers, 80% of whom are Druze soldiers. How in the world did we get onto it? Uh, it was a God thing, let me tell you. In 1995, a suicide bomber uh, exploded himself 
at a um, store along a highway. And it was frequented at the time by, by a number of young Israeli soldiers. Twenty-two were killed by this uh, crazed uh, suicide bomber, 1995. One who perished uh, is, was a young soldier, 21 years old, named Anan, uh, an Arab, Druze, Israeli soldier. And his best friend uh, was a guy named Moran, who is a Jewish Israeli. And Moran was absent from this incident, sadly heard about it soon thereafter, and um, became absolutely angered about everything, including God. Unsaved Jewish guy said, I've had enough. I'm leaving Israel. This is it. And so he went kind of on a pilgrimage, came to the United States, and went to the foreign country of California. (laughs) Ended up there. Talk about a wilderness journey. (laughs) And he almost inexplicably wandered into a church. Well, as a general rule, Israeli Jews don't wander into churches as a general rule. But you do when God's up to something. And so he went in and heard the message, was encouraged, stimulated, perplexed by what he heard, went back, uh, went back again, had a visit with the young pastor, and accepted his own Messiah. Stayed in California for discipleship and growth, and then decided to return to Israel to be a witness to his people started a ministry called Hope for Israel. Well, uh, I mentioned Moran's best friend, Anan, perished. Moran befriended Anan's parents, Arabic, Druze people. They embraced him uh, almost at, here's Diane. Diane, I always do this to, to Diane, I embarrass her. But Diane, I'm talking about our Israel trip. We were, this is only a good thing, even though you are fashionably late still yet again. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, Diane. Yeah, come on up. I'm talking about uh, when we were at the military installation. You were on time for that one, as I recall. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, no, no, Diane's always on time. I just give her a hard time. Um, so, uh, so Moran uh, almost became the uh, substitute son for Anand's parents. And he made it his business to be living proof to them of a loving God. Now, that's our motto, but anyone could use it. <laughs> to be living proof of a loving God. And over seven years, the Lord has really uh, given him favor with the Druze community, which is very closed. It's very closed. They live in northern Israel. They're fairly isolated. Most Druze live in Lebanon or Syria. This is the population of Druze who live in northern Israel. You just don't, uh, you just don't get into that community. But as the Lord saw fit, he sent this faithful guy, Moran, a Jewish guy, as an ambassador. And uh, through him, we were invited into that community, and we uh, even had uh, lunch at the home of Anan's parents, uh, his dad is called Abu Anan. Abu means father. So his dad was Abu Anan, the father of Anan. They hosted us and 
His father shared through a translator what had befallen his son, and we saw memorabilia and all the rest. Anyway, um, the next day or so, and we served in that community. Some of us uh, did some cleaning in a local school. I think, Diane, you did. You were on that team. Others of us worked in a clothing and food distribution center just to help out. There were Drew's ladies there, and you don't touch. You don't. We were told you don't extend your hand even to a Drew's man. Uh, you, you wait. If if they take the initiative, then you shake hands. And you definitely, you know, even when we do a loving touch uh, here, if, if I might touch a lady, we don't do that <laughs> over there. But these ladies were delightful, absolutely delightful. And so we served there. And then we go to the military installation, and one of the soldiers there asked a member of our group, how did you get on to this installation? Because even my parents are not permitted to come on. It's just that it's just... You just don't go there. In fact, one of the members, the commander, a lieutenant colonel, came in on his day off to give our group a private briefing. We went into this room and they had lots of food on tables and we had just stuffed ourselves so we didn't know what to do. And he had one of his soldiers um, uh, working a slide projector while he, the commander, was briefing us on things just like it was us. And then they permitted us to distribute candy on a Sunday after church, we came in here. Were you on time for that one, Diane? I wasn't sure. We, we On tables, we, we got candy at the Sam's, and we put them in little bags, about 500 bags, and schlepped them to Israel. And uh, we were permitted to distribute them and uh, have some conversation with, with the soldiers. So the soldiers said, how did you get on to this thing? Well, it was through Abu Anan whose son Anan died, who has been befriended by the guy leading us, Moran, the Jewish Christian guy. Abu Anan himself was a paratrooper, and the commander was a Druze man. And because of this connection established as a result of tragedy in 1995, here come 20 people from Sagemont Church in Houston, Texas, at this remote place. In fact, one of the members of our group said to the commander, what is the... And there's Rachel. Rachel was with us too. There's Rachel. Rachel, am I telling the truth so far? Okay, thanks. Mostly is good. All right. Mostly is good. Good to see you. Good to see you, Rachel. Anyway, um, so um, he said, he smiled when the question was asked about buffer zone. There ain't no buffer zone. I mean, they are on the border uh, with Lebanon. Anyway... um, we got to interact, uh, show you some pictures sometimes, with uh, uh, the soldiers and have conversation, distributing candy to them while they, they were there standing with M16 strapped over their shoulders. It was a little weird. Would you like some candy? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful opportunity uh, that the Lord provided. We saw... The sites that are biblically relevant to us, but also served through the land. We served Russian Jews at a soup distribution center in Netanya, northern Israel, Tel Aviv, its largest city, uh, and um, had a marvelous opportunity to get a little closer to the heartbeat of the people in the land. So thank you, members of Sagemont, for supporting the missions program. Each of our participants was responsible for 
raising funds, but the missions team, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, contributes to it. It's called the Ralph Edwards. He's one of our ministers, now retired, wonderful guy. The Ralph Edwards Fund is a designated line item in our budget, and some funding is made available for each participant in a Sagemont Church-sponsored missions trip. So we owe you a note of thanksgiving for allowing us to go. I think I could say in clear conscience, I think we represented our church well. This is not always the case, but but in this case, I think we did good. Out of 20 of us, we didn't have too many fights, not too bad. We got along. I really think we were living proof. And I know for a fact we were an encouragement to the missionaries who are still there. We're back here, comfortable, getting our fill of Mexican food, which we so sorely missed over there. But they are over there. And uh, they need encouragement. And they told us, your group did not drain us. Your group was low-maintenance, non-demanding. Your group really lifted us up. So that was a wonderful, wonderful thing, and we thank you. Randy. So here's the deal. It's tricky. Though it's legal, it's tricky, and I'll tell you why. We were told by our professionals over there, confrontational evangelism doesn't work. Because Israelis are so bombarded by zealous American Christians who in their two weeks in the land want to save the country, they're totally turned off. So street preaching, parades, tract distribution, knocking on doors, God can use anything, but generally it doesn't work. So we say, what works? They say service projects, winning their hearts so that we then have the privilege over time of giving them a reason for the hope that is in us. So uh, ours was a different, I can't give you, I can't say we shared the gospel with so many people and so many were uh, accepted the Lord. It's not American evangelism. It's entirely different. I can say everything we did was identified with the Lord Jesus and they took note of who we were. Then different ones of us had sporadic conversations. For instance, at this military base, I was talking to this beautiful young Israeli kid, this gal, with an M16 over her shoulder. She was a Jewish um, Israeli, and she introduced me to her boyfriend, who is a Druze soldier. And I was just thinking, man, it's going to be interesting when he tries to take her home to mama. But anyway, they, they were soldiers in the military, and um, so different ones of us were distributing candy and just having informal conversations, and uh, she said to me, are you a church group? And I said, yes, we're a church group from Houston, Texas. Oh, Texas. Cowboys. <laughs> and uh, she said to me, but, but, but you're Jewish. And I said, yes, I am. So here's the Jewish gal and the Druze guy. And I had a chance to share. You see, uh, I have discovered who our Messiah, the Jewish Messiah is, and that he is Yeshua. And uh, they were nothing but all ears. There was a bit of a language problem, but 
uh, we were able to share. So there were things like that, Randy, more than actually being able to sit down and uh, when we shared at one soup kitchen, the one in Netanya, the missionary there, uh, he said usually what he does is he shows the Jesus film in Hebrew while they're eating. And he told me, he said, you may not think this is a lot by your standards in America, but 12 of these people accepted the Lord last year. I said, no, 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 we do think that's a lot. Remember, this is a rough people group to reach. They've been tarnished. Uh, by things done in the name of Christ and uh, uh, but show of love is a little hard to is a little hard to to deny what we're planning on doing and this is the strategy of our missions team is go back um, not necessarily the same group but others from our church to build on the relationships established so it's a little more of a phased program rather than unload the gospel gun, have a good life, we did our job kind of a deal. It doesn't work like that in the Middle East. It's a little little different. I sat next to a woman. Do you remember the? she was a South? Well, she was one, she's the, one of the few who spoke English when we served in Netanya. She was wearing a green uh, sweatshirt or something, had like a beret. Anyway, I sat next to her and uh, I said, so tell me, how did how does a South African woman end up in Israel? And she told me her whole story. She was a pharmacist and her parents came and a lot of stuff. And then she said, and then I had my Jesus experience. <laughs> Just like that. At that place. She was led to the Lord by a Russian Jewish woman who came to know the Lord through their ministry. The Russian Jewish woman, do you remember that little lady about four feet tall, cute little lady bouncing around? She is the one who led this South African Jewish woman to the Lord at that soup and food distribution center. So the missionaries there are telling us, love in the name of the Lord Jesus is giving us the best Results. They had us on a project. We didn't do it only once. We should have done it more. They gave us these big garbage bags, and they told us they wanted us to go around in the communities and pick up garbage, and then when people would stop and say, what are you doing that for, we can tell them why. But we only did it once at Beit Shan. You know where we should have done it? At Lior's Settlement. Remember when he took us on there? We should have done it, although it was too clean, not, not enough garbage. Anyway... Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, and we ended, of course, with communion with one another and the Lord Jesus at a wonderful locale, the garden tomb, and then came back here to blessed Houston, Texas. Glad to be back. Okay. I share all that with you because I, I didn't prepare for today. <laughs> I'm kidding. Others in our group will give you bits and pieces of information as the days uh, go on. Is there anyone here who has any connection with Baylor University? You went there, you have a child there, you, you, there's a couple of Baylor people. Well, you'll be proud to know that Rachel over there represented you well. Almost every stinking day, she wore something that said Baylor on it. It was just, <laughs> it was just a horrible experience, I must say. So Baylor was well represented on this service trip. We sacrifice, brother. (laughs) 
Have you heard of the book of Jeremiah? Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, there's a chapter, it's chapter 36, and don't get nervous, we need not finish it all today. There is something key in it, however, that I want us to focus our attention on. It's in Jeremiah 36. It's a very, very key ingredient for those of us who are believers. I'll show you. Take a look at Jeremiah 36. There are the Lindquesters. We went to Israel. When did we go? <gasps> After, during Ike. I did not bring any kosher food home, no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting what you have an appetite for when you come back. The very next day, almost everyone charged over to Gringo's or, you know, someplace. <laughs> Unbelievable. We really suffered for the Lord. No Mexican food for a whole week. I'll tell you a cool deal. Speaking of Mexican food, in our group of 20, uh, about 60% of our group were fluent in Spanish. This was a God thing. We didn't, we didn't have a quota system. <laughs> it's just the nature of our church and community and so on. It's about 60%. Not all from Mexico. So one couple from Guatemala and so on, but Spanish speakers. I thought this is interesting. So we're at the soup kitchen in Netanya. And, uh, we had five of our Spanish speakers at a certain point in the program stand up and sing hymns to uh, Russian Jews who are now speaking Hebrew. They sang the hymns in Spanish. It was just, I mean, God has to have a sense of humor. And they loved it. They just loved it. They saw the heart of the people, even though there was a bit of a language kind of a problem. Kind of neat, really neat. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 36, are you there? Look at verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Do you know anything about Josiah? He was a prior king. He was a good king. And let me tell you something, brother. They were few and far between. He stood out. He showed respect, did he not, for the word of God? When it was discovered, he told the people, hey, 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 you better get with the program and submit to it. Well, his son is not like him. So parents... Let me take the heat off you. Grandparents, do the best in raising your children and grandchildren in a good way and then know there is no guarantee they're going to turn out to be good and godly kids. Why? Because they can make choices and you can't control it. God's a perfect parent, don't you think? How many rebellious kids does he have? So we can't blame God, can we? So I just want you to, I'm not saying be sloppy in your parenting or grant, I'm not saying that. I'm saying do the best you could and then entrust the kids to God. Josiah was a good egg. His son was not. You'll see. Totally different response to the word of God. So it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. Jehoiakim's another king of Judah. This word, during the fourth year of his reign, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. That's good. If God doesn't communicate, you and I can't know him. At this time, the word came from the Lord. Just don't miss that. If God said, I will stay in the shadows, 
you and I would be left with sheer and utter speculation about the nature of God, his will, his ways, his purposes. In fact, the whole world is in the darkness. They don't understand that God is a God of revelation who has spelled things out. So the whole world is guessing. I think this about this moral issue. I think that. I think, you know, anytime some reprobate, uh, known, usually member of the Hollywood community passes on, um, all, all of that person's friends are absolutely certain. He is now in heaven playing his guitar or whatever the deal. I mean, I hope that's the case, but I mean, where are you getting your theology from? It's, it's based on nothing substantive. It's only guesswork. You hear people say, well, I don't think God would do this. I don't think God would do that. Who cares what you think? That's right. What does God say? Well, I've got to tell you something. If God said nothing, we'd be left with your opinion, my opinion. You gotta thank him, folks. He's the God of Revelation. I don't mean just the book of Revelation, the books of Revelation. Sixty-six of them. And scripturated truth. You know what God is saying? He's saying it's a love letter. I want to be known and I want you to know me with accuracy. So I'll give you books, Genesis to Revelation. And in it you'll see my heart. You'll see what I delight in. You'll see what pleases me. You'll see what doesn't please me. You'll see what I have for you. You'll see how I designed life. You'll see how I want you to live. It's a love letter. You don't have to guess. So here again, God reveals a bit of himself to Jeremiah. And since it's in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, we know by examining the records, it takes place in 605 B.C. 605 B.C. is the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So how many years ago was that, approximately? Anyone good at math? Thank you. Whoa, about 2,600 years. That's a long, the word of God uh, on this occasion uh, was going to be given to Jeremiah. And uh, it took place 2,600 years ago. Okay, so here's what God says, verse 2. Take a scroll. That was what they used. (laughs) Rolled up. What was the writing material, do you think, at this time? Papyrus, papyrus, which is kind of a plant, right? And what else? Could have, could have been animal skins. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they would write on. And what they would do is they'd write in columns, roll it up around um, a rod, attach it at the top and the bottom, so it would be a scroll. Take a scroll, write on it all the words which I've spoken to you. I'm going to speak to you, but I want you to write everything I say to you down. Because what I'm going to say to you, Jeremiah, is not just to you. In fact, it's for folks who live 2,600 years later. It's amazing. Write down the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, concerning Judah, concerning all the nations From the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. At this point, Jeremiah has been ministering as a representative of God for about 23 years. God is saying, now write it all down. Everything I have given you from the beginning of your ministry till now as a prophet, I want you to write it all down. That's what he says to do. Now, here's what I want to depart from the text just for a second. And tell you, this is one of the most important texts in all of the Old Testament 
with regard to how you and I got our Bible. Now, we're not in the New Testament yet. It's the Old Testament. I want to show you what you're seeing here is absolutely consistent with what you'll see in the New Testament with regard to how did we get the Word of God. It's called the Doctrine of Inspiration. If a musician is inspired, they write music. If an artist is inspired, they do a painting. I'm not talking about that. This is a technical word. It actually means God-breathed. When we talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, we mean this. God is surely the divine author. It's his word. But he breathed it out and into certain choice, specially chosen vessels like Jeremiah, so as to write it down so that peeps like you and I could be reading it down to this very day. Inspiration says it's God's initiative, it's his product, it's his word, but it is transmitted, communicated, and written down through human agents like Jeremiah. And here's the cool thing about the doctrine or the truth about inspiration. God does not put his human writers in a trance. Jeremiah was not rendered into an altered state of consciousness. Fully conscious, so that what God gave him under inspiration, uh, inspiration would come through his personality. So that's why you see different vocabulary when you read different authors of the Bible. They have different ethnicity sometimes. They live in different ages. They have different life experiences, different genders, different um, breadth of uh, understanding, uh, different personalities. All that God does through us takes into account our God-given personality. This is another thing that's kind of a good thing for you and I to know. You don't have to compare yourself to another Christian. You don't have to say, oh, I wish I could be more outgoing. Oh, I wish I could be like that person. I wish, no, 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 no. All the ministry God has for you, he intends to have through your personality. Some are more quiet and reflective. Some are more um, demonstrative and emotional. It affects everything we do. Be who God made you to be and leave me to be who God made me to be. That's why we don't compare ourselves to one another. All of God's authored ministry is through personality. That's the doctrine of inspiration. So if you read Amos, Amos was a farmer. He uses a lot of agricultural metaphors in his book. But if you read the book of Romans, you're not getting that down-to-earth folksy stuff. You're getting a brilliant systematic, coherent, almost a legal treatise demonstrating the fundamental doctrines of the faith written by the Ph.D. of the day, the Apostle Paul. You see? It's marvelous that God could take about 40 authors over about 1,500 years from entirely different life experiences and bring forth a consistent message of redemption. That's called the doctrine of inspiration. God is the divine author. There is no other. But he communicates through human vessels, prophets and apostles. You're not one, and I'm not one. He has other ministries for us. But our ministries are undergirded by what these prophets and apostles, under inspiration, wrote, in this case, 2,600 years ago, so that we could learn from it down to this very day. 
doctrine of inspiration. New Testament parallel, 2 Timothy 3.16, key. All Scripture is inspired by God. That's the New Testament truth illustrated way back in the Old Testament. Both Old and New Testament parts of your Bible come the same way. As with Jeremiah, so too with Timothy. One final New Testament passage, which is huge. Second Peter chapter 1. It is huge. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Why not? Well, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Jeremiah didn't sit down and write Scripture. But men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Doctrine of inspiration. That's how you got your Bible. God, in his spirit, moved upon human authors so as to give us scripture down to this very day. Now, uh, do you think God is perfect? Me too. You think he tells the truth? Me too. Always. Ah. Therefore, would a perfectly truth-telling God inspire an imperfect, erroneous product? No. So there's a second doctrine you need to know about. The first is inspiration. The second is inerrancy, which simply means no errors. When we say the Bible is inerrant, we're simply saying the Bible is telling the truth. What substantiates the second doctrine of inerrancy? It's the first one. If God inspired it, you just told me. If God inspired it, he will not inspire an erroneous, deceptive, errant product. If you ask me, do, am I someone who believes there's no errors in the Bible? I say absolutely. How could you say that? I can say because God authored it. If I wrote it, probably going to be a lot of errors. But I didn't. Neither did Jeremiah or any of the writers of Old or New Testament. They simply wrote what God told them to write. So you need to know this. There's the doctrine of inspiration. And what follows from it is the doctrine of inerrancy. So we could say God inspired Old and New Testament writers to communicate exactly what he wanted for people in every age to know. And they did so without error in the original manuscripts. Now, is there a problem with what I just said? There is, if you think about it. So let me repeat it. God inspired Old and New Testament writers to write exactly what he wanted for them to write. And they did so without error in the original manuscripts. You have a problem with that? Correct. Raise your hand. Who here has in your hands an original copy of any book of the Bible? So critics of ours will say, you Christians are foolish. You're making this statement about how there's no error in the originals, but nobody has the originals. They're going to say through the process of transmission, the translations you have today have come to be filled with errors. 
The originals were written, who knows when, in Jeremiah's case, 2,600 years ago. A lot of distortion has set in since then. So you Christians are foolish to think when you sit there with your open Bibles, you're actually reading an accurate text. You need to know how to respond because those people don't know what they're talking about. So let's talk about what's called the process of transmission, meaning how did what you have get transmitted from the originals which we do not have. Now I want to read to you a passage of scripture. It's Romans chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Now I know this is a little heady stuff today, but I just, here's my goal. I just want you to know when you sit there with that open Bible on your lap, you're reading the Word of God. That's my goal. I just want you to be confident. You have the word of God. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, let me read this to you. Paul asked this question. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? He answers his own question. Great in every respect. And then he talks about one of the privileges, advantages, benefits given to the Jews. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay. God took a people group called the Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he made them custodians of his word. So, for instance, in Jeremiah, he's not Italian, is he? No offense. I love Italian food, but he, he ain't Irish. Love potatoes. No offense. He's Jewish. God could choose who he wants to. So God entrusted his oracles to the custodianship of Jews. Now, I'll tell you what my people have done. They've taken it very seriously, not to obey it, just to copy it accurately. Terrible. Now, my people have disregarded the word of God, but they were very careful to copy it. So a whole group category of Jews emerged called scribes. We called them soferim, scribes. And these are your major anal retentive people of old. These are your massive detail, every jot and tittle folk. These are not your dreamers, visionary. These are not your big picture people. These are your bookkeepers, your accountants. These are your down-to-earth people, Sophirim. Later, another group of scribes came to be called the Masoretes. Masoretes. And they were so serious about the accurate copying of the Bible, uh, they subjected themselves to certain checks on their copying to make sure it was accurate. So, for instance, in the Hebrew Bible, in the margin, in your Bible you have margins on the side, in the middle, or on top. You sometimes you get notes or cross-references. Same thing in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, alongside Leviticus chapter 8.8, the margin says this verse is the middle verse in the entire Torah. So if a scribe is starting at Genesis and he's copying painstakingly Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he'll know when he gets to Leviticus 8.8, he's halfway done. And he can check himself out. If at the midway point he's at another verse, oops, he left something out. What do you do? Start all over. In the Hebrew Bible, in the margin alongside Leviticus 10.16, it says that the word darash is the middle 
word in the Torah. Alongside Leviticus 11.42, there's a note that says the Hebrew letter, Vav, is the Hebrew, is the letter in the middle point of the Torah. At the end of each book of the Old Testament, statistics were kept, such as the total number of verses and stuff like that in the book. So, for instance, at the end of Deuteronomy is a note that says uh, Deuteronomy is made up of 955 verses and that the total number of verses in the Torah is 5,845. The total number of words is 97,856. The total number of letters, 400,945. So if at the end of their transmission they end up with 400,944, uh, 400, they go, oops, I missed a letter. I'm telling you. That's how they would do it. Check and check and check and check and check. Copy it. Custodians of the oracles of God. Therefore, over the years, the transmission process has been almost subject to no distortion whatsoever. And then there was this. Something happened in 1947. Something was discovered. you have any idea what? Dead Sea Scrolls. About a week or so ago, we went past uh, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. 1947. A young Arab kid was taking care of sheep. A couple got away. He's looking for them. He climbs up. Lots of caves there. Throws a couple... Uh, pebbles into a cave to smoke his sheep out. He hears a pink, pink, looks inside. His stones are hitting uh, off of vessels, pottery-made vessels, in which he discovers all kinds of scrolls. He doesn't know its value. Nobody does at the time. Since the academic community has called it perhaps the most strategic archaeological discovery of modern day. Why? I'll tell you why. Prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contained the books of the Old Testament, the earliest copy of the Old Testament we had was from 895 A.D. Let me, let me round it off, if you don't mind, to 900. 900 A.D. Okay, so, so we're in 2000, whatever it is. Prior to the discovery in 1947, the earliest copies of the Old Testament we had were A.D. 1000. But the Dead Sea Scrolls give us copies of the Old Testament from the second century B.C. So what do you think the academic community does? They say, what an opportunity to disprove the reliability of the Bible. We will compare the uh, copies of the Old Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls, second century B.C., with our A.D. 900 copies, and we're going to see all kinds of of discrepancies over these centuries? No. Almost precisely to the word exact, identical words. There's nothing like that. No literature that could have been so preserved and protected with such precise accuracy over the millennia except the word of God which he chose to protect and preserve for people like you and me today. Somebody says to you, over the years, the process of transmission distortion has said, and you'll say, it should, but it didn't, and that's the miracle of the Bible. You have a gap from 2nd century B.C. 
to 900 A.D. You can pick, let's say you take Isaiah. You take Isaiah, which was in existence, A.D. 900, compare it to Isaiah from 2nd century, exact. There's 60 plus chapters in Isaiah, which shows the process of copying, painstakingly done, uh, accomplish the mission of God, whose word this is, preserving his word so that every generation can be warned about what it says. Now I want to tell you this. What about the New Testament? That's the Old Testament. Is the New Testament reliable? Yeah. Do you know in existence today we have over 5,000 full Greek, that's the language of the New Testament, full Greek manuscripts, 5,000 of the entire New Testament. Do you know that we have over 10,000 full Latin manuscripts of the New Testament? Do you know we have over 9,000 full manuscripts, early manuscripts of the New Testament in other languages? Do you know we have over 24,000 early copies of portions of the New Testament in existence today? Do you know there's no other literature that has so much corroboration? For instance, have you ever heard of Homer's Iliad? Remember that thing, Iliad, they made us read it in school? I never heard any kid, any parent complain, hey, hey, how do I know this is exactly as Homer wrote it? Nobody says that. But do you know we only have 643 existing copies of the Iliad? Not the original, copies of it. Do you know we only have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars? We only have eight for the histories of Thucydides and Herodotus, classical literature. And not only that, these copies were written down much, much longer after the original than the Bible documents are. Folks, I know the Word of God is the Word of God because of what it did inside of me. You do too. So I'm not trying to prove the Bible to you. I'm just trying to tell you, don't dare let anyone disprove it. They don't know what they're talking about. The deepest level of assurance that this is the word of God is what's happened inside of you. I just know this. But we don't have to take an intellectual backseat to anyone. There's more corroboration for the Old and New Testament documents than for any other extant, extant means existing, classical literature today. You can't say this about the Book of Mormon. You can't say this about the so-called Holy Quran. Are you kidding me? We can tear it apart based on something called the science of textual criticism. So I just want to share this with you, and then we'll end, and uh, hey, we'll do something else next week. <laughs> so there are all these documents, copies uh, I've told you about. Let's, let's say First Timothy. Let's say we got thousands of copies of First Timothy. The science of textual criticism will tell us to do this, if you can get it in your mind. Let's say we get a table, and it starts from that wall, and goes all, it's a long table. It extends to Galveston, big long table. We lay out all these thousands of copies of First Timothy, and we compare them, and we just see if there's any discrepancy. Could I tell you something? When you do that to the New Testament, you find, this may shake you, 150,000 discrepancies. They're called variants. Wow. So you and I are placing our confidence in the New Testament when in fact 
the copies reveal 150,000 variants. Wow. But hang on. Not one affects any point of doctrine. I want to give you an example of a variant. One copyist may render a phrase this way, Christ Jesus. But another copyist may have rendered it Jesus Christ. Even then, how do we know what is the most likely, most accurate rendering? Let's say I got a hundred copies of that particular text. Ninety-nine of them say Christ Jesus. One says Jesus Christ. What do you think is the most likely rendering? The ninety-nine. That's the science of textual criticism. So even when it comes to, it amounts to not one percent, point five percent. The variants concern only 0.5% of your Bible. Not one major point of doctrine. And even the variance in 0.5% of the Bible can largely be resolved so that we can arrive at what we think the most likely rendering is. There's nothing like it. Now, why do I tell you all of that? If you have the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New International Version, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard, the English Standard Version, or any other credible translation. I know we have our preferences, personal preferences. That's not what I'm getting at. If you have any of the credible translations, I mentioned some and there are others, when you open it, you are opening the Word of God. Be filled with awe. Put yourself under it. God communicated to you. And he preserved his communique to people like you and I centuries after it was originally received by people like Jeremiah. Why? Because God wants to be known by you, who he already knows. He desires relationship. And there can't be relationship if there isn't communication. He took the initiative in communication. That's just how much he desires relationship with you and I. When you open the Bible, you say, oh, God, thank you for speaking. Thank you for superintending your words. Thank you for preserving them down to this very day. Listen to me. You will see next week what Jehoiakim did with the word of God. Today, people do things perhaps not so dramatic. He burned it in a fire. Today, people do, in essence, the same thing by mishandling it, disrespecting it, ignoring it, disobeying it. But I want to tell you something. Though all this may be the case, the word of our Lord endures forever. Your faith in Christ Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, is on very, very firm foundation. We have doubts from time to time. Fight it with reason. What you're reading is accurate. When the Bible says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. When it says, I've cast all your sins behind my back. When it says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. When it says, I go to prepare a place for you, one day you'll be with me. When it says these things, you say, this 
is the Word of God. And I can count on it. Do not let the so-called intellectual academic community shake your faith. You can have a high IQ and still be filled with darkness. You're filled with light. It's the light of the Word of God. There's nothing like it. Christianity is not an alternative to Judaism or Islam. It's categorically different. Your Bible is the Word of God. Mohammed did not write the Word of God. Joseph Smith did not write the Word of God. Your faith is based on light. Islam is based on darkness. I don't know if you know it, but the prince of darkness is using Islam in our day at a fever pitch. You can kiss one-time Christian Europe goodbye. It's now under, almost entirely under Sharia law. The Quran teaches that there are only two options for you, the infidel, convert or perish. It is not a religion of peace. It's the prince of darkness turning up the stakes because he read your Bible. And he has more confidence in it than some of us. And he knows his time is near. He read about the lake of fire reserved for him. And he's doing everything he could to destroy people to dissuade them from confidence in Christ because everyone he leads away from Christ is one less person to give the most high God worship. And that's Satan's motive. He wants to be worshipped as the most high God. Don't look for political explanations to what's going on in the world. Our politicians are as confused as everybody. It's a spiritual thing going on. Satan Hates it when people worship the one true God. That's why you're under such pressure. You're a marked man or woman. But don't worry. He who is with you is greater than he who is in the world. How do I know that? The word of God told me that. That's what we go for. Nobody else's words have this measure of authority nor is worthy of the confidence we should give to the word of God. We just touched on the transmission process and on the manuscripts and how God's word has been preserved with precise accuracy down to this very day. Come on. Your Bible is the word of God. Every word, every jot, every tittle, every bit of it. If it says it, you ought to believe it. Because it's God's word. We're a privileged group. We are entrusted with the oracles of God. That means we ought to read it. Study it. You are. And obey it. And we ought to tell people about it. We are. We are. We are. Randy. They're all over the place. They're in museums. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are in the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem. The British Museum has ancient manuscripts. They're all over the place. By the way, well, I'll save this, by the way, for next week because we're late. Uh, by the way, there's more. How's that? 
we'll do <laughs> we'll do more lord willing next week lord jesus thank you for communicating your kind intentions to us your sacrifice your compassion your love eternity everything how could we know these things if you didn't reveal them you have we're new we trust you we respect you we believe you Thank you for your word, which endures forever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Lord willing, we'll talk more next week.